Lord, I thank you for the word, for we ourselves need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. We too, Father, need to be warmed by the Spirit in our hearts so that we would listen to you and work to please you. We too, Father, have needs that sometimes go unmet, spiritual needs especially, and and yet your word stands ever ready to support and feed us and clothe us, so to speak, to shine a light on our path, to light our way ahead. We ask, Lord, that what I would teach this morning would be something you would have prepared through my work, and it would come through my mouth, but it would be your words. And that each, our, uh, each of us, Father, would hear these things as from you, so that where they convict us, we don't dismiss it. Where they encourage us, we accept that as from you, and we glory in it. They instruct us, Father, so we may please you. Let all these things happen, as we ask every week in your Son's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's continuing now in our examination of the first question that the church posed to Paul. You remember last time we talked, I said that the first part of the letter was Paul raising issues he had heard about that concerned him. But now we've transitioned into the second part of the letter where Paul now is responding to questions he was given from the church. Things they were confused about. And in the first question, which is chapter 7... We don't know the question, but based on Paul's answer, we can tell that the question must have revolved around the nature of marriage in a Christian context on divorce and remarriage and on the value of singleness or on perhaps the need for it. And then lastly, on the question of a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer, which will be the issue we look at today. And through all of these things, Paul is just patiently teaching this church on these questions, helping them to understand God's grace and his expectations for marriage in a Christian life. Last time we studied up through chapter 7, verse 11, and in that first opening part of the chapter, we examined three basic truths. So it's really pretty easy to summarize with three points. First, Paul taught that singleness is an acceptable life. In fact, it may even be a preferred lifestyle for Christians. But it's reserved for those who have been gifted in that particular way. Because without the gift of singleness, you're going to be tempted to be distracted by passions. And so Paul says, seek it if it is right for you. Then secondly, Paul taught that if you marry, each is to have one spouse. Each man may have one wife. Each wife may have one husband per life. In other words, marriage has a one per customer limit. And then thirdly, he taught marriage requires that we relinquish sole authority over our bodies. We begin to share our bodies with our spouse. They have equal authority over our body. And that's what we did last time. But if you'll notice, we've only covered about 25% of this chapter. So Paul still has plenty left to say on the topic of marriage and on a general theme as well that he will talk about today. So in this next section, beginning in chapter 12, we're going to look at the difficult situation of a believer married to an unbeliever. What should happen if one member of a marriage comes to faith Yet the other member of that marriage remains in their sins. What does that mean for the Christian in that relationship? So Paul's going to give counsel to such a couple today. We begin in chapter 7, verse 12. Let me read verses 12 through 16. Paul opens, he says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, 
And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In this section, Paul begins by saying, to the rest. Now, the rest refers to those who were not already addressed in the earlier section. That is, verse 8, those of the unmarried. Or in verse 10, the married believing couple. So by process of elimination, the rest would have to mean someone who is a married believer with an unbelieving spouse, that other combination that's possible. So what obligations, he says, does a person have to their spouse should that spouse be an unbeliever? You'll also notice Paul prefaces his answer to this question by saying he is the one giving these instructions, not the Lord. Now, Paul does not mean that the rest of what he's saying here is somehow optional or that it is not inspired from the Lord, etc. All of Paul's writings are inspired scripture, all those that made it into the canon. So by definition, this is from the Holy Spirit. So this is this is godly instruction from the Lord. What he means by this comment, though, is as a bookend to the earlier comment he made in verse 10. If you notice up in verse 10, he says, what I'm about to say came directly from the Lord's teaching, meaning what the Lord himself expressed when he taught the apostles when he walked the earth. So now Paul is simply making clear that he's moving on to a new teaching that Jesus himself never expressly gave himself. So you could think of these two statements like something we say today when we're quoting someone. We begin by saying, quote, and then we end by saying, end quote. These bookends have that same effect. So in verse 10, he says, this is from the Lord directly. And then in verse 12, he says, now, at this point, I'm no longer quoting Jesus. I'm just talking on my own. But in no less way is this scripture. He's just wanting to be clear that he's not continuing to quote Christ. So we're looking here at something that's inspired. And as we look at those instructions, it's fairly straightforward. Paul says, if a believer has an unbelieving spouse who is willing to continue in marriage with that person, then the believer must continue in that marriage. Paul's speaking about a situation in which one person in a marriage comes to faith where before that moment, both people in the marriage were unbelievers. That would be a particularly logical thing for Paul to address in this case, because within the church of Corinth, this was bound to be happening left and right. This is a church that was growing from a starting point in which there were no believers in the city. So it would stand to reason that on occasion this occurs in a given situation. And when it occurs, you have one spouse who knows the Lord and the other one is left on the outside, so to speak, looking in, disconnected from what this first person in the marriage is experiencing. And when you have that happen in any marriage, it should be obvious to all of us that this is going to create friction. It has to. Faith in Christ fundamentally changes our worldview and changes our eternal future as well. And the changes that come as a consequence of coming to faith are profound for all of us. And they lead to countless opportunities for disagreement with an unbelieving spouse. More so than what would just be average, I guess, for any marriage. This is a new source of that. From everything from how we handle our finances, to how we raise our children, to our entertainment choices, to the kind of friends we keep, to the places we visit. And especially for things like the priorities of our life and where we're going in life. What is our call and our walk of life to look like? All of those things 
will be fundamentally different for the believer than they will for the unbeliever in many ways, in many cases. And so that places severe strain on a marriage. Perhaps you've had an occasion to be friends with or an acquaintance with a marriage that's mixed in this respect, an unbeliever and a believer. Or perhaps you've even lived in one or perhaps you are living in one. If that's you or if you know someone like this, then you already understand this issue instinctively, don't you? You know what this looks like. You've seen the struggles. It puts the believing spouse in an incredibly difficult situation to often choose between pleasing the Lord or pleasing their unbelieving spouse. Paul says, if you're in that situation and your unbelieving spouse is nevertheless content to remain married, despite the friction and despite the difference in your points of view, then we as a Christian have no grounds to divorce. We have no basis to separate in that marriage. And Paul's counsel is completely consistent with the one flesh principle that we learned earlier in this chapter. That is that the bonds of marriage transcend faith. God established the sanctity of marriage for all humanity, not just for believers. I think sometimes we tend to forget that. The marriage bonds, the marriage vows are not somehow Christian vows. They are vows that go to the heart of any person who makes that kind of a commitment. They're no less binding for an unbeliever than they are for us. So we honor that commitment. Paul says we do so for some obvious and clear benefits. First of all, when one member of the marriage is a believer, the other, Paul says, is sanctified. The word he uses is sanctified through that relationship. Now, the word sanctified means definitionally to be set apart for a blessing. So Paul is simply pointing out that the unbeliever can be blessed through their association with a believing spouse. In ways that should be reasonably obvious to all of us. As God blesses the believer, the child of God, that blessing spills over into the family setting that that person lives in. Or also the work setting of that person in many ways. We've seen this in the scriptures. Likewise, Paul says that the children of a marriage will be blessed by having both parents present, for one thing. And secondly, by the presence of a believing spouse, for the same reason. More importantly, and really more to the issue... If the Lord has moved to bring faith to one member of a family, in the case of this newly believing spouse that's at the center of Paul's discussion, well, then it would give hope, wouldn't it, that God may be intending to move again in that same family and to extend that testimony to further members of the family, perhaps to the spouse. It only makes sense if you see God working in one member of the family that it it may be the case that he's going to move in the life of the second one eventually. And if that's going to happen then it would also stand to reason that the believing spouse is going to be a catalyst to bring about that other person's faith. I mean, these are not guarantees, and it's not a cause-and-effect relationship that we can bet on. We're not saying that, and Paul's not saying that. What Paul is saying, though, is if we give up and walk away from a commitment we've made in marriage because we've come to faith and we wonder about whether our spouse will, we may be running from the miracle that God intends to do through us one day. So we stay married, first, because it's a commitment we made. And then secondly, because we sanctify our family through the godly influence that God can bring in our presence in that family. But we have to be honest about this, too. We have to be frank, right? If we pursue a marriage that is unequal in this respect, let's all be sober about what that means. Let's understand what's really involved in this. Things are going to be difficult. It's inevitable. The believer is going to find him or herself some point along the way forced to choose between pleasing God 
or pleasing the unbelieving spouse. That is an inevitable outcome of an unequal marriage. And that's really no choice at all because we are always to seek to please the Lord, which is where the conflict in the marriage will arise. But I know, and and I'm sure you've all seen this or you may have experienced it yourself, that there are going to be times, even in a believing marriage, by the way, this happens. I, I should make clear about this, too. It's not unique to unequal marriages. But we will have moments where we will choose to appease our spouse rather than to serve the Lord simply because we want to maintain some modicum of peace and harmony in the marriage. We all know that feeling. But, folks, that's not right. I mean, it's trading one thing for another. It's trading short-term benefit for long-term loss in our own walk with the Lord and in our eternal reward. That's why an unequal marriage is especially difficult. I came across the story of a woman who experienced this very situation in her own marriage. Her name is Nancy Kennedy, if you want to look her up on the web. And this is what she wrote. It's a short testimony. She says, when I came to faith in Christ and Barry hadn't, her husband is Barry, I guess. She says, I thought God had made a huge mistake. After all, two following God together made more sense than one. But I now know God never makes mistakes. Since I'd been an unbeliever when we married, I had not willfully disobeyed God by marrying Barry. My situation is by God's sovereign design. Reminding myself of that enables me to relax my spiritual chokehold on Barry. I like the way she puts that. And then she says, the way I see it, God has a plan for each life. And no matter how hard I try, I cannot transform someone else's heart. I can't coerce. I can't sweet talk or plead my husband into being a Christian. In fact, when I do try, it only drives him away. Sometimes literally. If I start nagging him, he gets in his truck and drives for hours. So I decided long ago to accept that it's God's job to change hearts. That decision frees me to pursue my relationship with God without the added burden of having to bring my husband to faith. All I have to do is love and enjoy him. That's God's plan for me. And he gives me all the grace I need to accomplish it. That doesn't mean I'm not lonely at times or that I do everything right. The other day I grabbed Barry by the shirt and yelled, don't you see Christ in me? (laughs) Technique probably needs a little refinement, but. And then she said herself, she said, struck by the irony of that question, he laughed. And to my surprise, said yes. It helps to remember that Barry's not my enemy. He's my husband. I'm just as much a sinner as he is, maybe more so, because I have the power to say no to sin and often don't. And she goes on. I think that's enough to get the point, right? This is a woman who is facing the difficulties of that unequally yoked marriage, and yet she's come to grips with the reality that God is sovereign. If he brought her to faith, he's got a plan in this. And whether or not he chooses to go the next step and bring the husband to faith as well, she can live and accept what he has done in her life. She gives some advice to women who are caught in this situation. Just quick points. She says, live in the now. Don't pine for the happily ever after day in the future. Number two, live out your faith. Let your spouse see you stumble and struggle as you live by grace rather than by rigid rules. Honor your marriage. Don't speak negatively about your spouse. Enjoy him as God's gift. Pray, pray often. Talk openly and freely about God. Find a support system. Study the Bible with a friend. Attend church as often as possible. And never give up hope. So as you can see, an unequal marriage is a trial. And that's why Paul warns a believer elsewhere in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians. He warns a believer who is not yet married, do not enter into a marriage with an unbeliever. 
He says it in one place in 2 Corinthians. I'll just quote one verse. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And to be fair to the text, Paul's talking in general terms, not just about marriage, but about any kind of binding relationship. But it applies to marriage as well. So up to this point in 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about a situation where a member of an existing marriage comes to faith, leaving their spouse where they started as an unbeliever. That's one kind of challenge, right? And that's that's one that you face involuntarily, so to speak, because God created it by bringing you to faith in the midst of your circumstances. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if we knowingly choose a spouse who does not share our faith in Christ, we are acting very foolishly. We are signing up for a life of unnecessary spiritual struggle. We are shackling ourselves to someone who can never understand what we understand. They will always have different values and goals unless they come to faith, as God may permit. So in the meantime, they're going to be like a spiritual weight, dragging us down, holding us back in our opportunities to mature and pursue the Lord because of our binding to them coming into conflict with our binding to Christ. So why would we ever want such a thing? For parents, and many of us in here obviously have kids who are yet to marry, and so this is immediately practical advice for us to share with them. We need to stress to our kids how absolutely essential it is that they choose a mate who is a believer. This is not optional. And it's not just the fact that the scripture commands it. It's a practical issue of the utmost importance. Why shackle yourself to someone who is going to make your life very hard, very difficult? Whatever earthly joy or benefit you think you find attractive about that relationship with the unbeliever, that is going to be greatly overshadowed over the course of your marriage by the eternal loss you are suffering or potentially suffering as a result of their influence. You cannot even begin to equate the two. Paul says that the joys of this life are not to be compared with what is preserved and ready for us in the kingdom. And we suffer perhaps the loss of those things because of the disobedience and spiritual immaturity that our unbelieving spouse will provoke in us through their negative influence. And just frankly, out of our desire to keep harmony in the marriage, we will make compromises we will regret. And certainly I'm not advocating for marital discord either. I'm saying this is the unavoidable consequence of an unequal marriage which is more reason than any not to enter into that marriage if you have a choice there is another fish in the sea for you paul says though if you make that choice there's no turning back it's never a cause for divorce now moving on in verses 15 and 16 paul does give one option for an escape but it's one that i think is abused in the church let's look at it carefully from the point of view of what paul actually says he says if the unbeliever though by their own volition, leaves the marriage, and presumably they would do so because they find your faith incompatible with their own desires. If that forces them away, Paul says the believer is to let them leave. We are not under obligation to chase after them, to pursue them in a way that attempts to keep the marriage together. Paul says, let them leave. And you can immediately understand why Paul would give us that advice, right? Think about this now just practically. You're married to an unbeliever. Your unbelieving spouse is upset at you because of your faith. That's the premise that's behind Paul's statement. They run off. They're saying the marriage is over. They want to leave. 
If you pursue them, what will you have to do to hold the marriage together? You'll have to concede something. There'll have to be a concession. They've left because they're upset at something. In order to stop that process, you're going to have to concede whatever they're upset about. Well, friends, what you're going to have to do is take on greater spiritual harm. You're going to have to say, all right, I'll, I'll stop going to church. Oh, all right, I'll stop praying so much. I'll stop studying the Bible. I'll, I'll stop meeting with those people who are Jesus people. I mean, whatever it is that caused the discord is going to become a point of argument and debate and concession. So whatever he or she objects to is going to run counter to what the Lord wants us to do. If we're talking about a situation where the where the marriage is being split up over the faith of that newly created believer. So Paul says, look, on balance, you're better living single from that point forward than chasing after an unbelieving spouse with all of what it will do to you if you get them back. As hard as that may be, that's the better outcome. Paul says we are not in bondage to them. If the unbelieving spouse makes a demand on us as a condition of the continuation of the marriage, Paul says, let them walk. You're not in bondage to their demands. When Paul says we are not in bondage in such cases, he is not talking about bondage to the marriage vow. That's how this has been commonly misinterpreted. Paul is not saying let them leave. You're not in bondage to your marriage. No, The word bondage means slavery in the Greek, and marriage is never compared to slavery in Scripture. Paul is referring not to the bondage of marriage. He's referring to the bondage of us having to concede to the demands of our unbelieving spouse. We're not to be in bondage to any man on any set of rules, whether legalism coming from the church or whether the law being thrust upon us from the Old Testament or from the rules that an unbelieving spouse may push on us as a condition of marriage. Paul says we are not bound to that. We have freedom in Christ. We are not to submit to their decrees. And so we are free to let them go if that's the alternative. And then in verse 17, Paul raises the obvious question. How do you know, for example, if you're going to be able to win them to Christ? So in other words, the only reason to persevere in this marriage is if you feel a hope that your influence may still yet bring them to faith. But when you get down to brass tacks and it's between them and their demands and us and our hope for their salvation, Paul says, you can't make that bet. You don't know what God's plan is for them. You have no understanding yet of whether God's intent is to call them into faith one day. And so you cannot bet on that future possibility at the risk of your own spiritual maturity and development. That's not a bargain we're free to make. We are to let them go. Now, some in the church have taught that this statement opens up a door for believers to divorce an unbeliever and remarry. Have you heard this? This is one people will sometimes come out with from Scripture and say this is one of those circumstances where a believer who has seen their unbelieving spouse leave them is now free to remarry. But I want you to look at the text. Paul never says the believer can do either. He never says the believer is to divorce. And he certainly never gives permission for that abandoned believer to remarry. He only says we are to allow them to leave because we are not in bondage to them, meaning to their demands. What does that mean then? Without reading anything into the text, without adding anything that's not stated, we're left with only one conclusion. Live a life of singleness from thereafter because you still have a spouse. That spouse just left you. 
Physical separation is not equivalent to divorce. Physical separation does not give us the right to remarry. Physical separation is just physical separation. And our bounds of marriage do not end until that person dies. Back to our one flesh principle. So the question here is not between let them leave so you can find a better spouse. It's let them leave so that they will not be a spiritual anchor dragging you down. And you'll be more godly in a life of singleness than you will in pursuing that existing marriage. So the question we ask ourselves in every situation, not just in this one, but in all situations, is what course of action is the best for me in light of my coming day of judgment before the Lord? And the answer in this case is, keep them if they're willing to stay. Let them leave if they must. Do not remarry. From this point, Paul now moves to a general principle. In other words, he's taught on the specific issue, but he doesn't want to remain on simply the issue of marriage because underlying his counsel here is a general principle that transcends the context of marriage and goes to every context of our everyday life. Remember, the church had asked him about marriage, and particularly in this case, whether they were required to stay married when one of them became a believer. That's probably the question that they heard. Well, Paul's answered that question, of course. We just looked at that. But he wants to reinforce this with a broader application. Not only are we to continue into marriage after we come to faith, but we're not to seek turning our life upside down in any facet of who we are. We're not to look at this as an opportunity to reset our life. Look at verses 17 through 24. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Well, he's not to become uncircumcised. And has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Well, he's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Well, don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, well, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So what is the greater principle that Paul's appealing to here? It's simply that we are to remain as God has called us. Now, God called us into faith, all of us. At some point in our life, we were, at li- we were doing something when it happened, whether we were a kid, whether we were adult. We were living in a particular context. Self-evidently, when he chose to call us into faith, he did so knowing where we were, who we were, and what we were doing. And it's in that context he said, be my ambassador. Paul uses several carefully chosen examples here to prove his point. He mentions circumcision, for example. That's another way of talking about Jew versus Gentile. It's shorthand. What he's really saying is, if you were a Gentile when you were called to faith, well then remain a Gentile. Don't aspire to becoming a Jew, as if that were possible. And if you're a Jew, well don't feel like you have to dispense with all of the tradition and culture of Judaism in order to be a Christian. You can be a Jewish Christian, where you are. And then he talks about slavery. He says, if you were a slave, well being a Christian doesn't mean you automatically should seek for freedom any more than you would have otherwise. What he's saying is these distinctions make no difference to our ability to serve Christ. None. There's no inherently advantageous position within the context of society for Christians. We please God where we are. 
So the greater principle is there is no universal condition for all Christians. The Christian faith does not prescribe a certain lifestyle or walk of life, except that we would please the Lord in living a holy life. That's the common denominator. Apart from that, it'll look different for each of us. I don't know if you did this. I did this when I first came to faith. I started romanticizing what it meant to be a Christian. You look at these friends of yours or people you meet who've gone off to be missionaries to the other side of the world, you know, and you think, well, that's what I have to do. That's what Christians do, right? We sell everything and we move to Africa. And I've met people who have done literally that, Africa even. They just, that's where they thought. And they ended up miserable for three or four or five years. And then God turned that and used it in some way, of course. But, you know, it became evident that maybe they jumped ahead of God a little bit. Not everyone's supposed to, to go to seminary. Not everyone is going to do what others do. It's, it, and there's nothing wrong with going to seminary. There's nothing wrong with going out as a missionary. Many are called to do it. They should do it. That's, you, know, you know that's not my point. My point is, though, that there will be a thousand versions of that. And we are called in a certain place at a certain time for a certain purpose. And that purpose goes well beyond our own personal salvation. It's what God wants to do with us that is the point. So not everyone changes careers. Not everyone has to change lifestyles as a result of coming to faith. In fact, the far more common outcome of coming to know the Lord is to remain exactly where we were when the Lord found us, doing what we were doing, though now doing it with a knowledge of who we are in Christ and with a hope that we will not do it in sin. He saved us while you were attending school. He saved us while you were going to work, living in your neighborhood, whatever part of Austin is home, wherever you were, wherever you were at the time. So it stands to reason there's some purpose in that. That's why he says in verse 24, remain in the condition the Lord found us in. Literally in Greek, it says this, as he was called in this, let him remain with God. Wouldn't it be a shame if we romanticize what it means to be a Christian to the point that we actually lead ourselves out of the context where God has placed us and miss the opportunity he gave us in that context to be his ambassador? You've got to give that careful consideration. Uh, obviously, few of us remain in the same place forever. So there's a limit on this principle. God is not saying once you're saved, you can never move, you know, or once you're saved, you can never change jobs or any of that sort of thing. We, we understand that there is an extreme on both ends here. But we should not ignore the manner and the timing of our salvation or of our placement. In fact, forget where you were when you were saved. Just consider where you are now. I mean, we can't go back in time in any case. So here you are. Here I am. We are in a certain city, in a certain home, in a certain neighborhood. We attend a church that has a certain location. These things are not by accident. And if you move, if you leave, you'll have a new setting. And that will be a place God has chosen for you as well. Reflect carefully on it. Consider those opportunities. I mean, consider the fact that many a man have gone to prison not knowing the Lord and then have come to faith while they were in prison. And while they are in prison, they become his representative in that prison. And that becomes a church home for them. That becomes a witness opportunity for them. And as a result, they're able to do what God asked them to do in that place. They can't get out, at least not right away. And as a result, they're able to serve him. That's Paul's point. He says, if you're in slavery when God calls you, don't worry about it. What he means is don't concern yourself that that location is somehow unsuitable for God's purposes in his calling. Turn that around and ask yourself, why did he wait until I was here to call me into faith? Must be there's something about this place. Now, even as the scriptures preach to us, don't try to change too much or too fast 
of where you are or how you serve. At the same time, though, the scriptures do preach we are to change who we are very fast and in keeping with the leading of the Holy Spirit. So how we think or how we behave or what we value, those things are supposed to be changing so that we can be an influence in our world and we can be different than the world. But don't try to force that change and don't try to mimic external things like what it means to be a missionary, what it means to be a pastor or teacher or, you know, all of these iconic like images that suddenly become our goal when we forget that the very place we are might be everything we need. And I think this principle extends to a church body, by the way. When you feel called to join a particular church, and of course, we can use our own church as an example, right? When you come into OHBC and you think this is somewhere God has placed me or you're wondering maybe this is where God has placed me. When you make that commitment in your heart, you are not just receiving a location to worship. You're receiving a mission. Whatever this church's mission is, is, is becoming your mission by definition. And so you have to ask yourself, why do I need to be here? And our mission is to reach our local community. We, we have a very active missions effort. We love to help support missionaries. We send people out and we support them in missions work. That's great stuff. We're never going to stop that. But that does not take the place of our local responsibility, right? That, that augments our responsibility. We have to have a heart to reach this community as well. In whatever way God provides. Because, why? Because we're here. And not in Africa. I mean, the fact that we're here means this is something God wants to be done here. And so our primary mission must reflect where we are as God is appointed. Lastly, the way we do that is going to be consistent with who we are as a church body. We can't seek to mold ourselves to fit the pattern of a church body that is fundamentally different than us, either in size or location or gifting. We have to reach with what God's given and apparently, for reasons I don't understand any better than you do, this particular unique combination of people is the key for what God wants to do in this part of Austin. Whether it's just for this area right around us or some other outreach or it's just us in this building today, I don't know. But apparently God designed this, right? And the wisdom of it transcends my understanding because when I look around this room, I can't begin to understand what this particular group of people are good for. <laughs> so let's remain in the place God has placed us individually Let's be sensitive to the fact that we exist in a certain place and time for reasons that God has designed. We need to seek to understand those reasons and to be his ambassador for that context and time. And then secondly, as a church body, that's another thing we should be asking ourselves. What is this church for? How did God intend it to be used to glorify his name beyond the obvious of preaching his word? And let's act on those things. Next week, we come back, we'll finish this chapter, maybe get a little into chapter eight, looking at where Paul takes this principle even further. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the mission. You've given this mission to all the members of the body of Christ, not just to this one, we know. But we thank you, Father, for the specific call you've placed on each of our lives to know you, following you here in this place, in this town. Let us have a heart, Father, for that. I, just, I know, Father, each of us have a heart for you. I know we, in our own way, will speak concerning you to friends and family. We are not silent witnesses, to be sure. But we also know, Father, that we will often walk past the very person we're to talk to, we're to drive past the homes we're to stop and talk to. We're so easily overlooking the obvious opportunities. I pray, Father, you would continue to give us a heart for that. First and foremost, for our own families, and then secondly, for those people that come into our life. Let us continue to honor the sanctity of marriage. 
as we've learned in this chapter. For those, Father, who may be struggling with an unbelieving spouse, I, I pray, Father, for them and for their spouse. We pray that those unbelieving spouses would come to faith. Even after many years, perhaps, and hope may be fading, we know, Father, that there's never any less chance for you, no less opportunity, no less power is available to you, Father, for that person's heart to change. It's only a matter of your will. So we place them in your will, and we ask, Father, for the blessing of a marriage that would be made whole spiritually. And we do also ask, Father, for the believing spouse to be given the grace to continue to honor their marriage, to do as much as they can to promote harmony, but above all things, Father, to follow you and to please you. We pray for that. And let this church be a continued source of support for any who find themselves in that situation. And finally, Father, we pray for the children and the teens, any who have heard this message and have yet to even consider marriage, perhaps, but one day they will. We ask, Lord, that you would be reminding them in that moment how important it is that they seek a spouse who knows you so that their marriage, Father, may be full, not just in earthly respects, but in heavenly ways as well. And we ask, Father, for our week to be a good one, one we can serve you with and witness for the sake of the gospel. We pray you'll bring us back here next week and in weeks to come so that we may continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.